You got to make a decision. Do you want to reside in a space of comfort and security right. or risk and discomfort? If you want to reside in a space of uh, comfort and security, you're, you're not going to do shit. Yeah, right. All right. But if you're going to res- want to take risks and be uncomfortable, that's when the real change right. Right. Uh, 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 happens. That was Sean Dove, and you're listening to USA TBD, a podcast exploring critical issues facing America today, of which there are many. Social justice causes, systemic racial oppression chief among them, an outdated, visionless, and unsustainable foreign policy, a broken food system in which we are literally eating ourselves to death, and a political system so dysfunctional it feels almost beyond reform. All of this unfolding within a world of accelerating exponential technological change and in a country that doesn't really know itself, where myths and half-truths still define the narratives we believe in and live by. So who are we really, deep down? And how do we get here? What's actually happening today, right now? And where do we go from here, together, as a nation and a people, in a future that is very much to be determined? I'm your host, Dave Bernath. My guest today is social entrepreneur Sean Dove, currently the CEO of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, or CBMA, a national membership organization dedicated to ensuring the growth, sustainability, and impact of leaders and organizations focused on improving the life outcomes of America's black men and boys. Prior to the CBMA, Sean worked for over 20 years in youth development, community building, and advocacy for children and families. He is an accomplished veteran of this space, and he joined me in the studio here in New York. Sean, thanks so much for uh, for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Great to have you here, Dave. Uh, thank you for luring me uh, into this studio. Uh, not <laughs> quite sure what's in store, but uh, really excited. Uh, well, to I, be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. I think you have a great personal story. You're 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 a great storyteller, and I think we're going to probably work our way backwards organically into the campaign for Black Male Achievement. Your, your life story, but I, let's just start at the at the now going forward, because when you and I met, we sat in your office, and you're like, Dave, here's this article from the Times, you know, 12 years ago, this gap, you know, in terms of, you know, how what black men's lives are like, and I've been, I've been working on this for a decade, and before I, you had another article, I said, I know what it is, man, it's that piece from the Times <laughs> yes. about even the affluent black boys, you know, falling at a higher rate, you know, down the ladder. And we talked about this struggle versus like progress and incrementalism and then moving the needle. So let's just start there as experienced as you are in all these issues and how you look forward, how you're feeling about this, the rate of change and how in the world we're going to get things to move faster. Wow, uh, you're starting I'm off. starting uh, big. I just thought, let's just jump in the deep end of the pool. <laughs> Throw me into, uh, I'll try and swim. And uh, so, you know, as you know, I lead a campaign for Black Male Achievement, which is a national membership uh, organization that works with leaders and organizations to improve the life outcomes of black men and boys uh, in America. Uh, it was launched uh, 10 years ago at the Open Society Foundations, uh, which is George Soros' uh, philanthropy. It was supposed to be a three-year campaign. Campaign and you know uh, one of the challenges. I have a love hate relationship with philanthropy. Right, uh, do a great deal of good, but um, there are also certainly some issues. And one of the issues is that you know philanthropy often looks at a generational, uh, centuries long uh, issue and decides to slap a three or five year strategy uh, on on this issue. But uh, uh, thrilled to say that it was originally a three-year campaign, but with through a lot of uh, disruptive behavior, breaking rules, partnerships, and leveraging relationships, uh, we were able to spin it off into an independent entity, and we're celebrating. This is our 10th year Congratulations. of um, kind of catalyzing this mm-hmm. uh, movement of black male achievement, this current movement, right? This is not new work. Uh, when we look at the history of uh, black people in America, Right. This I, I see this work as uh, four centuries uh, along, and I am kind of in a place. You ask me where I am now. We're celebrating uh, right. ten years, and uh, 
kind of like standing at this uh, intersection of the paradox of uh, promise and peril uh, for black men and boys uh, in America, uh, black people in America, people of color. And on one hand, um, you know, uh, I've been in a lot of conversations lately around the uh, 50th uh, anniversary of the Kerner Commission and 50 years since the assassination of uh, Dr. King and have we made uh, progress. And on one hand, yes, we uh, have made a lot of progress. But uh, as a nation, uh, I think we've taken two steps forward and two steps back. And uh, I would say now with the uh, current administration, uh, two steps forward, three steps back. Uh, But I choose to, uh, in this paradox of uh, promise and peril, to uh, focus mostly on the promise of uh, black men and boys in America, uh, stay hopeful uh, in this work. Uh, I am uh, 55 years old, right? And uh, so I think I've been at this uh, not just 10 years leading the campaign for right. black male achievement, but in many ways my entire uh, life. And I had um, a couple of summers ago uh, an epiphany uh a rude awakening a disillusionment moment uh you know i was still at the point where uh you know i was idealistic thinking that uh you know sean dove swashbuckling uh <laughs> a, a social entrepreneur and movement leader we you know was going to change the world yeah. and i still believe that but that summer uh of 2016 in a span of a week uh, Alton Sterling, uh, was murdered by the police in Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana. And, uh, thank God for social media and everyone is right. like a, uh, citizen journalist now and can uh, video. And we saw the videotape of that. And a week later, um, Philando Castile in, uh, outside of Minneapolis, uh, and that was on videotape, uh, uh, in a state where he legally was carrying and, and he was murdered. And, those back-to-back uh, incidences, uh, obviously, um, many uh, incidences like that happen, particularly with black people, black men and women, and law enforcement. Uh, but that, for me, was an epiphany. Like, you know what, Sean? Uh, racism is not going to end on your lifetime. Right. Right. Uh, What you can do is lean in as hard, as strategically, as smartly as you can. And there's a saying that is like, you know, plant seeds for trees that you won't be around to uh, experience uh, the shade. And uh, so while it was uh, a hard moment for me, but it was somewhat liberating. Right. Right. And like. Do what you can. A little can. the pressure off in it where you're not going to solve it all. Exactly. And do uh, 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 do what you can. And, uh, you know, some days, Dave, I uh, wake up and I'm like, God, really? You have me uh, lead in a national movement for uh, a black male achievement. I look at my story and uh, think of uh, the many times during the course of my life uh, where it could have gone the other way. Right. right? And uh, so I just feel that sometimes... Uh, you don't decide what your calling is, right? Uh, your calling uh, picks you. And right. So so this is ministry for me. And uh, uh, I often say that when uh, there's two CEOs, right, there's a chief executive officer uh, that's uh, building uh, an organization and an enterprise. And I just got off a call with my board uh, chair, my board chair, uh, there's a chief executive officer, and there's a chief evangelical officer. Right. Uh, and I see myself as, you know, spreading the gospel of black male achievement. And that starts with uh, a really asset-based frame. Like, we have uh, grown up and have dealt so much in uh, this nation with uh, the demonization, criminalization of black men uh, that we have been cast as the pimps, the players, the perpetrators. Right. And... uh, that is not who we are, right? Um, that there is an asset-based um, uh, presence of black men and boys in this nation, and we've contributed uh, a lot. And when we launched the campaign 10 years ago, folks had to – progressive people right. <laughs> had to get their heads around 
blackmail and achievement in the same sentence. Right. Uh, the narrative and the dialogue is so much around a deficit framing, marginalized men, disconnected youth. And right. uh, so the uh, the CEO, that's the chief evangelical officer, uh, you know, that's what I really enjoy doing and sharing the work, pouring into other leaders, lifting up uh, uh, this field and being a catalyst. Meanwhile, my board says uh, you need to be more the chief executive uh, right. uh, officer. So that's where I am now. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll just, you know, before I take a breath, because I feel like I've been like on a, a marathon nonstop rambling. But um, we're celebrating 10 years. Uh, in fact, June 12th is the uh, 10-year anniversary of the campaign for Black right. Male Achievement. It is uh, – sometimes I don't like to use the word celebrating, right? Uh, we're acknowledging because right. uh, many of the disparities and inequities that caused the launch of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, and we talked before about that 2006 uh, New York Times cover story that talked about – or the headline was, you know, the plight of black men deepens, right? It, it wasn't news for a lot of folks, but uh, it was news for uh, for, for some people. And over the last 10 years, um, a lot of accomplishments. Uh, we've built a lot. Uh, we've invested a lot, almost a quarter billion dollars to wow. build this field either directly or leveraging. Um, but there are days when I say, wow, you know, uh, you know, $212 million. Like, what do we own? Right. Uh, how has the playing field truly, uh, been leveled? Um, and, you know, I try not to stay in that place, right? right. And so where I am, I've just made a commitment uh, that, you know, I'm leaning into this for the next decade at least, right? I'll right. Be, I'll be 65 and we'll see what happens then. But I do think that uh, we need more of a social enterprise model. Uh, the traditional not-for-profit transactional relationship with philanthropy to do this work. Right. Um, it's not sustainable. It's not effective. We've seen a lot of movement building in recent years. Uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, 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 Me Too. Right, uh, uh, absolutely. But we also need to build institutions yeah. right, for the sustainability. And uh, I am thinking now, how do we leverage um, wealth, wealth building to uh, uh, even the economic uh, uh, playing field. And right. as that article we talked about, the recent New York Times article yep. uh, shares is that even then, even when black boys are raised in families of the 1% right. uh, wealthiest in the nation, uh, their trajectory to wind up into poverty um is still uh, uh, really dominant. And at the root is that, you know, the, the nation has to come to grips with its origin yes. and uh, the the disease and the sickness in the soil of how we started uh, right. uh, this nation. That lingers on in yes. so many ways. Yes, the original sin. So Indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, when I came to see you, I'd been out to that Silicon Valley conference and uh, – I guess the question you start thinking about is what, you know, are there ways to disrupt even the, quote, do-gooding industry of nonprofits, philanthropy? Uh, I'm not sure what those ways are, but everybody's got a cell phone. How can we, uh, you know, bring some of that disruptive uh, exponential change to some of these spaces? I don't have the answers, but when you talk about asset building and I know you uh, you, you follow the tech space, you're interested in all these technologies mm-hmm. – you know, that's obviously one space, and what I just said was incredibly broad and vague. But as someone who's, you know, worked with the Obama and the Soros Foundation and, and a lot of high rollers and big people and big money, and you're obviously building a network of leaders, so you're not so much on the retail side, you're wholesale trying mm-hmm. to build a network of people who can take it further across a giant swath of the population. But when you think about, you know, in the next couple of years, what could be a couple of things just to support people like you and people you work with? Is it just, you know, more money? What about the allyship? Is it government? Where, where, where do you think when you – if I could wave my magic wand, Sean could wave his wand and just change a few things. What would be just in the near term things that yeah. would really help accelerate what you guys are trying to do? 
Great, uh, great question, and uh, was a bit of a ramble in no, the no. question. <laughs> well, I will uh, provide a sufficiently rambling answer to that uh, rambling question. Uh, um, I think number one, uh, one of the rallying cries of the work that I lead with the campaign for Black Male Achievement is that uh, there is no cavalry coming to save the day in our right. communities across the country. Uh, we are the iconic leaders that we've been waiting for, curators of the change that we are seeking to see. And in that, with leadership and organizing, I believe that we have everything we need in our communities to affect change, okay. right? But at the same time, right, um, and, and some of that, when I, when, when, I, when I say we have everything we need, uh, you know, there's this whole notion of the power of positive deviance, right? And what positive uh, deviance tells us is that the solution to the world's most intractable problems lies in the heads, the hearts, and the hands of the communities, the citizens, that sometimes we in philanthropy uh, want to paratroop into communities and save the day. Right. The solutions are already uh, there. Um, but I can have all the solutions and ideas and strategies I want if I don't have the resources mm -hmm. uh, and the influence to enact and implement. Uh, it's going to be a challenge. Yeah. And – so we certainly, uh, you know, in perhaps the richest nation in the world, uh, with all the billionaires uh, in this nation, you know, why are we uh, struggling? Philanthropy and $85 billion a year uh, right. uh, given, you know, why are organizations uh, struggling? Part of my work is uh, how, yeah, we need billionaires, but we also need willionaires. Right. And, oh, that's good. And, 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 and willionaires is that no matter who you are or what your net worth is, if you have the will to effect change, right. uh, I firmly believe that, uh, that individuals that are most affected and impacted by the world's, uh, uh social problems, uh, racism, uh, uh, uh social injustice, uh, are the ones that should be the lead actors with that change, right, but they right. need partners. And so, you know, there are a couple of things that I think that we continue that we need to do right now with the magic wand, right? Um, some of this is what we're doing right here, right, with this podcast. Right. You know, how do we become more uh, masters of our own media and able to tell our yep. own authentic stories? I think we really have to start there uh, and continue to elevate. Uh, an alternative narrative right. of uh, what black men and boys, uh, who we are, and what value and what assets uh, 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 we have. Uh, I think the second thing that we need to do is we need to, when I talk about the, being millionaires, right, uh, it just can't be uh, black men and boys. It can't just no. be uh, black people. It, we need a a cross-sector, multiracial uh, coalition yep. and crusade to say that your injustice is my injustice, right? And I think that, um, you know, the, the, the powers of the state have done a great job of divide and conquer, right. pitting uh, my uh, injustice against someone else's uh, injustice. And I right. do think that uh, we are in a place, you know, who says that Trump uh, has uh, uh, divided uh, the nation? In many ways, uh, he has organized and united folks. And and how can uh, leaders in the black male achievement movement find ways to be more supportive with Me Too, uh, LGBT community, uh, uh, immigrant rights, right? So I think right. the cross-sector yep. Uh, collaborations and understanding that government alone, philanthropy alone, the social sector, academia uh, alone will not create the change. Right. And I think one of the things that CBMA does and what I, uh, I think have an innate knack uh, uh, to do is to bring disparate people together. Uh, I think the third thing uh, that needs to happen when I look at the movement and field of black male achievement uh, is being able to invest in leaders right. and uh, the organizational sustainability piece. Right. What 
inspired me to spin off the campaign from Black Male Achievement out of the Open Society Foundation. You know, I mean, people were like, oh, you got a cushy philanthropic job. Why right. are you taking this risk? Right. Was that I saw that there were people that have devoted their life to this work, this cause, uh, many of whom were grassroots leaders. And their institutions were fragile. Their infrastructure was fragile. And I wholeheartedly believe, Dave, we are not going to make change until we are able to fully strengthen a critical mass of leaders, right? right. And these are not the usual suspect of leaders that are sometimes chosen uh, 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 by philanthropy and, 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 and government. Uh, these are community-based, uh, on-the-ground leaders as well. But how do we strengthen leaders strengthen organizations while we need movement building we also need institution building yeah and when you look at the field of philanthropy and the scarce amount of resources that people of color of uh, uh people of color that organizations get right, right um it's hard to build a, a a sustainable organization but if you have strong leaders strong organization that's going to create a strong field of black male achievement. Right. And that is the only way you're going to get the outcomes and the change. And you have to be in it for the, the long haul. And that takes time. Yeah, that you can't, you can't, you can't get that to move too quickly. It takes is, time. It's generational, yeah. generational work. Yeah. For sure. Um, it's interesting you talk about the coalition of, you know, the various movements coming together because that, that's a, that can be a tricky, you know, dynamic, right? In terms of, uh, you know, obviously, if you're a black person, you might be saying like, "Okay, I get it. You know, you got that problem, but that's that's a that's a last hundred years problem. I got a four hundred year problem." Mm-hmm. And you know, and uh, but but um, it was interesting. I was at the Parkland uh, March for Our Lives thing down in D.C. Uh, I went down with my two of my daughters, and it was interesting because I thought they did a very good job of bringing you know uh, kids from Chicago and other places mm-hmm. talk about gun violence, gun violence. But obviously, it wasn't an obvious thing, right? These are sort of suburban white kids with one of these horrible mass shootings. Uh, but I think they thought to themselves, it'll probably come off a little tone deaf and maybe a little bit. It is broader. It can't just be about our problem. And they did a good job of bringing those folks in. But I thought that was that was a non-obvious move on some. It was wise of them and 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 correct. They did that. But it speaks to what you're talking about. Yeah. And one thing that I would say that that. Uh, inclusion was uh, not the original intention, yeah. right? Uh, as the march was being organized, uh, increasingly... Folk- oh, so you have some info. You have some and, background. And, and, That's and, good. And, and increasingly, folks across the country, uh, particularly uh, uh, from communities of color, began to point to groups like, in Chicago, uh, uh, the uh, Black Youth Project, uh, who, which has been organizing young people for years around uh, gun violence right. in their cities, and, and and there's an organization called Cities United that has been doing this uh, for years, but has not received the level of attention and support. Right. right. So what happened? Uh, you know, I wasn't there, but uh, <laughs> what happened was that there was pushback. Yeah. Uh, what about, yes, uh, mass shootings in schools are horrific. Um, but where's the outcry, uh, in the African American community, uh, with police violence, uh, community violence? And I think it was a very smart move, uh, by the organizers yep. as they were planning this to say, you know what, uh, our pain is the same, right? It may be happening in different places right. in different ways, different way. but it's still gun violence. And uh, so um, I think we need to see uh, a, a more of that, right? right? And I think that uh, that becomes a threat, right? Uh, when we look at, uh, you know, Fred Hampton and, and, and the organizing that he was doing, the Black Panther Party. Right. And when he began to go cross town and began to organize – uh, uh, the Latino community and bring together, uh, uh, poor white folks and make this, uh, 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 not just 
just about black liberation and, and civil rights, but uh, this was about humanity and human rights. Right. You're like, hmm, that's a problem, right? Uh, at the time of King's assassination, he was right. on the same path. So when we begin, but it's hard, right? Yeah. It's hard to cross over yep. uh, because uh, the there's a duality with identity. Uh, poly, you know, there's a sure. reason for it, yeah. right? But... It, it it does create silos, right? And then when we look at resources, uh, there is the um, scarcity mentality to say, "Well, if I partner with you, or if I share with you, that might mean less, right? Uh, 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 less for me." So I think what we have to do as a nation is uh, find out what are the ways to intersect movements, right? At the same time, not dilute. Right. And divert from uh, 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 your cause. Each of our causes, yeah. Yeah, I thought, uh, you know, it was, it was, and I think I said this on another interview I had, it was sort of, I was glad to see they did it. And then another party is thinking, wow, they had to make the effort because they wound up on the cover of time easily, so to yeah. speak, right? But not the kids in Chicago who've been trying to do this and battle this issue for years. So you feel a little bit of a bittersweetness. But it was, it was good they did it, um, and we need more of it. I mean... You know, I don't know who's out there listening to this today, but as you talk about, you know, a broad coalition and the fact that even though partially to your point about the about positive deviance, the roots and the, the tools and all are, exist in these communities, clearly the power structures that have oppressed them and in any country, and certainly, you know, black folks in the U.S. are decades, centuries long and involve a lot of other people who either consciously or unconsciously yes. are a part of the problem – so, you know, uh, it's going to take a lot of those folks to change their mindset, probably to, to move the broader societal, you know, whatever condition. Um, well, what's, what's your feeling about this whole, even this whole term of allyship? And, you know, if, if there's some listener out there who's, you know, you know, 42-year-old white dude who sells insurance in suburban Charlotte, North Carolina, who, who cares about this issue, but he's got, mm-hmm. all of his, he's got all of his implicit biases, what have you, and, and folks in general who are sensitive – you know, as a leader, how, what, what do you, when you think about that term, which I guess is relatively new, uh, what do you, how do you feel about it? So, and uh, it's, I don't think it's new. Uh, you know, you look at the civil rights movement. Uh, there were uh, many white allies sure. in the civil rights uh, uh, movement. And what I would say to the forty-two-year-old uh, 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 white person that wants to, right? So right. this becomes like, uh, do you have the will right. to, to do this? This is the willionaire, right? Yep. Uh, to get as much information as uh, uh, possible. Yeah. One, also to look within and acknowledge uh, your own privilege, yep. um, particularly white privilege, yep. and to ask a lot of questions, right? And we certainly need allies of all races to uh, make change, right? But uh, I think it's really important to, there's different ways to lead. Um, um, I think that there are strategically, um, at times, you know, I look at the work uh, with the Black Male Achievement, right? Uh, It really wasn't until um, in philanthropy that, when some white CEO foundation presidents began right. to say that this is uh, a critical issue and they began to organize others, right. uh, that we began to get critical mass. And I yeah. was like, well, why did that have to happen? Right. So right. I do think that uh, there is a role uh, uh, for, for everyone. And it's just so much about self-awareness. Right. Um, and, and, and you talk about implicit uh, uh, biases and, and, right. and, and checking uh, uh, yourself. I find that when there is a safe space that's created and trust that is built to first have these kinds of conversations right. where uh, – There will be occasional awkward moments and yeah, people yeah. have to not be afraid to have a misstep because well, there's got to be trust underneath. I don't know if you're, you know, it, it's not occasional awkward moments. Right. Like, you know, this shit is uh, it's uncomfort- a lot of them. <laughs> uncomfortable as, uh, 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 and so what I would say is like, uh, if, if you are a, a, a ally, you are not as uncomfortable as hell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know right. if, uh, you'll be bleeping stuff out or right. what the, uh, uh, profanity, um, 
uh, rules are for this podcast, but I'll try and control myself. Uh, if you're not outside your comfort zone, you are not uh, uh, in a it. lead. You're not in right. it. Yeah. Uh, one of my mentors, uh, Jeffrey Canada, uh, who founded the Harlem Children's Zone, and he's on my board, and uh, he checks me uh, every once in a while and uh, reminds me that, you know, uh, sometimes I regret asking him to be on my board, but uh, – <laughs> He challenges me and says, you got to make a decision. Do you want to reside in a space of comfort and security right. or risk and discomfort? If you want to reside in a space of uh, comfort and security, you're, you're not going to do shit. Yeah, right. All right? But if you want to res- take risks and be uncomfortable, that's when the real change right. Right. Uh, 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 happens. You know, one of the things that, that when you were talking about Parkland um, – and the race dynamic that uh, strikes me, right? And you, you know my story. I'm yeah. coming up on 29 years of uh, a recovery yep. uh, in alcohol and drug addiction, one of the greatest decisions I ever made. Uh, but right now with the opioid crisis, right. um, you know, there is a call for empathy and uh, compassion, uh, the New York Times uh, magazine it's, did a cover story, and the story was the children of the opioid uh, uh, epidemic. And look, I, I know addiction is I know a where beast, you're going. It's very right? frustrating. Yeah. Uh, but in the 80s, 90s, it was crack babies. Yeah. And it was the criminalization right. of black people uh, and addiction. Yep. And now get treatment, right? And every time I see one of those commercials, I'm just so torn because I can relate to the pain and suffering of addiction. Uh, But at the same time, I can relate to the pain and suffering of uh, of racism and how the country uh, has flipped the narrative. uh, uh, I'm starting to see a little bit of that being referred to here and there, but I can remember the first. I felt like the first. I don't know. 10 or 20 articles I'd read in a place like the Times, this is like maybe in the last year, I'd read the first couple of paragraphs and I'd be waiting for that line to say, you know, leaders acknowledge that the irony or something about sort of the, the war on drugs, mass incarceration, I'd be reading, I'd be like, wow, nope, nope, nope. There's no mention of the kind of black irony, no pun intended, mm-hmm. that this crisis, the white suburban crisis is a health crisis. The other one was a crime crisis. Yep. I just... And But you're starting to see it. I have seen writers connect the dots, and I'm starting to see that a little bit. But, boy, it, it was not there in the beginning. And in general, it's a very different vibe around this whole issue and just points again to just the differences uh, in the way the communities are treated and these issues are treated historically. I think with technology now – uh the what I call the uh, underground digital uh, – uh, railroad it's a lot you have to really work hard to be tone deaf yeah uh in this nation because we have so many folks that have become masters of their own media right and uh they're telling the story they're raising up the dichotomy and yep. uh and forcing mainstream media to take a look at uh, how they're reporting right. a generation later the addiction crisis uh uh and the impact and the reaction, white versus black. Right. You know, you were talking about Hampton and connecting the dots between people. Uh, and I, you didn't use the word class, but sometimes that comes up. And, you know, some black leaders will say it's not about race, it's about class, and which I think is total bullshit. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a legitimate connection, <laughs> you know, because class is another part of the hierarchical system that uh, people struggle with. But it seems like... Uh, uh, it's a mistake to put that ahead. Uh, you know, peop, you know, there aren't Philando Castiles getting shot because they're poor. Yes, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Yes, um, and uh, but I think it's interesting. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I got it. So you were talking earlier. This is what it was. All right, Alex, I'm in the zone now. I'm back. So you you bring up this idea, like you said, this choice that Jeffrey gave you. Do you want to be comfortable and safe, or do you want to be uncomfortable and take risks? And I think obviously for a leader. The path is obvious. You're not going to, like you said, get shit done or impact other people if you don't get uncomfortable and take some risks. But I think we'd probably all agree that the natural human tendency is towards security and safety. And so what I look at this issue 
even though on the one hand I'm energized by the power of technology and social media, like you said, for people to get called out and, you know, you can't get away with stuff as much, et cetera, and, and that's really positive. At the same time, I think, oh, man, with the way that the world is changing so fast, everyone is feeling unsettled and less secure. I don't care what color you are, yeah. how old you are every day. So in that environment, as opposed to say, you know, we're killing it and it's 19 in the 1960s, this economy was crushing. We had Europe was still rebuilding itself. Mm-hmm. Asia wasn't what it is now. And we were like the kings. Um, now it's the opposite. Now you have all this uncertainty, technological change. And so it, it feels, I just think to myself, damn, you know, that's going to be that raises the bar even more to get someone to want to be generous of spirit, to think about someone else uh, when they're feeling more and more uh, under duress, worried about the future uh, as, as this rate of change just hurdles forward. So I think that's kind of a tough – it's like two things happening at the mm-hmm. same time. You know, More tools and more uncertainty and more insecurity broadly. Yeah, yeah. You know? I so, guess that wasn't a question. No, 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 it's, no. It's, it's, it, and it was a seed that's uh, uh, sprouting and what it makes me think of. Uh, so uh, there's a colleague uh, in his work, um, Dr. Sean Ginwright, who was a professor at the University of San Francisco. And it's one of the leaders in research around trauma and uh, trauma-informed care, health and healing, uh, we are leading some of that work in, uh, with the campaign for Black Male Achievement. And one of the things that he says is that the greatest act of social justice is self-care. Mm. Right. And in my work, I have seen uh, folks that have been and are dynamic leaders and have poured themselves into uh, their communities. Right. I'm glad that you brought because I believe that we have to work harder on ourselves than we do on whatever our movement, our right. cause. Uh, there has been a lot of literature and, and, and reports over the last couple of years, a number of uh, leaders uh, in the Black Lives uh, Matters movement that have committed suicide or right. have died violent, suspicious uh, 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 deaths. And so in this rapidly changing world uh, – you gotta have some anchors, right? Yeah. And 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 for me, it's uh the doveness, uh my my family, uh my wife and uh, uh four children. Uh, I also believe if you are doing any kind of uh, leadership work, if you don't have an uh, executive uh, coach and or a therapist, necessarily probably both, <laughs> uh you you are um you're in danger. Yeah. You, are, you you are in danger. Uh, the levels of uh, volatility, uncertainty, and um, just um, ambiguity, and I think it cuts across. Uh, that cuts across class. Yeah, right. Really and, does. And and, and and so, I think that our ability to elevate, and particularly in the uh, uh, black community and demystifying mental health. This is National Mental Health Awareness uh, right. Month. You know, uh, what I have seen in my lifetime is slowly and surely, you know, once upon a time, you know, talking about depression and mental health in our community was like taboo. Right. I ain't crazy. But now it's a sign increasingly of courage. Right. You surrender and say, I'm going to uh, uh, seek help. Uh, I believe if you are a black person growing up, uh, in, uh, and living in America and you don't need or take advantage of therapy, there's something, something wrong with you, right? right there's right. something, something wrong with you. So I, 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 I do think there's a self care and, uh, we have seen leaders that we have had to create a whole strategy called BMA health and healing strategies, leaders that are charged to, uh, be the caregivers and youth developers, who have raised their hand and say, I'm depressed, I want to commit suicide. And where this field needs to go more and more is uh, addressing the trauma right. that uh, the leaders, men and women, are carrying themselves. Right. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've read a little bit about people starting to study the, the impact of this kind of stress, like you said, of just growing up black in this country. But there's a, that's got to be a whole area where a lot more can be done. 
uh, to, to sort of unpack what, what that means, even if just a, a quote-unquote regular person yeah. you know, going yeah. through all the things you go through. I think some of day. it also is around cultural identity right. and being able to uh, what young people don't get in school uh, that they have to get in the community and the homes, right? And right. That uh, you, your history did not start with uh, a slavery, right? And uh, right. that uh, you uh, were not a slave; you were enslaved, and you right. come from a, a, a great history. And because I think sometimes at a very early age we. Uh, because of racism, yeah. feel that we are a defect and that we are the problem and uh, right. begin to manifest uh, manifest that. Yeah, that's why it's obviously great to see the work of, you know, Ava and Ryan, all these films being made. And, uh, you know, that's uh, Get Out, obviously. These are all uh, – we want to see more and more of that. Have you been to the museum in D.C.? I have not been Yes, yet. yes. I was there a year ago. Uh, part of a fellowship that I was a part of and only had two hours. Uh, and I started uh, on the lower level right. uh, where they did a phenomenal job of uh, narrating and depicting uh, the transatlantic slave trade right. and the economic mm-hmm. uh, narrative on how this country's wealth Yes. was uh, built on free labor and, and, and right. uh, the vicious uh, system of, uh, of slavery. And it just you, – you, of course, I, I, I knew that. Right. But with the museum and, and, and seeing that, yeah. I think that uh, certainly got to get uh, – Well, get and you there. knew it, but the truth is we don't really teach it in depth. And I've said this before on this show. You know, we don't, we don't spend a year of high school – just studying slavery yep. the whole time. I mean, the whole, like, really, really get into it. And, uh, you know, there's a book uh, called The Half Never Told. Have you heard of this book? No, no, I have I'm, not. I'm spacing on the professor mm-hmm. who wrote it, but it's, uh, I, and I've said this before on this podcast, I opened it up and the first three pages were maps of, of the spread of slavery up until the Civil War. And right off the bat, you're looking at it going, wait a minute, it was growing? Up until 1860? I thought it was, quote, unquote, dying out. Yep. It was like an antiquated you know, economic inefficient system. But in fact, it was the opposite and was an engine of the country's economic growth and well-being from financiers in New York all the way down to the to the Western yeah. states. None of that shit, quite frankly, is taught in any kind of remotely accurate or comprehensive way to American citizens, black or white. And, and, and by are, design. Yeah. No, it's true. It, it's funny that you mentioned Get Out. When I went to the museum, my uh, crazy thought was the sequel to Get Out was to uh, lock Congress and a bunch of other politicians into the museum. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would have to get out uh, with a new consciousness and understanding right. of uh, what it uh, uh, means to uh, uh, be black in America and what America has done right uh, to black people. Yep, yep. No, it's uh, I, you know, it's it's a shame. I suppose every country suffers from a kind of weird number one ism, right? And the British Empire, the Roman Empire, you know, and now the American Empire. Um, but you know, I, and maybe it's just typical of any country when it's in its quote unquote heyday. But we have such a strong, you know. Uh, tendency to think of ourselves as the greatest nation on earth and that we just we're not very good at you know looking at our flaws and you know and uh you go to places that have longer histories and you know it's not a big deal quote unquote to acknowledge oh yeah this was a horrible time here and we all oh, yeah yeah the king killed all these people here and then we wiped out this group and it's a little more acknowledged either because it's maybe it's further in the past um, but we we're just not even there remotely. We've never really acknowledged and kind of owned up as a society to not only the way we treated the indigenous population, but clearly slavery and and the legacy of it. You know, I think Dave, part uh, a really significant part of that and the denial and acknowledgement. Uh, if you look at the founding documents of uh, the nation, right, and and the hypocrisy, right. Uh, in, you know, just how this nation was 
established and its so-called values. Right. And if you have a set of values of uh, liberty and justice and uh, we're all uh, uh, created free, but then you act totally oppositely, yeah. uh, that creates a sense of a, uh, I think, a, a national cultural schizophrenia That's a good way of that putting it. we are facing, right? And I think one way, and I have a little experience with, a, uh, you know, therapeutic uh, engagement in this, you know, uh, what's the denial of right. uh, who we are? And I think that's why yep. it's not taught and right. it's denied and... Uh, we have uh, some 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 revolutionary work to do as a nation. It's true, you know. I, I mean, it's obviously going to be maybe a, a a darker experience, but I do want to get down to Alabama and see that new museum. Yes, yes. Which, is, which exactly speaks exactly to this issue, you know, and, and uh, that that is the, the lynching history is not well documented, not well understood. I don't know if you saw the thing the other day about uh, newspapers at the time that were promoting them in advance. There were some tidbits from some southern papers, even as late as, like, I want to say the 1920s. It was sport. It was sport. Yeah. Uh, and I know uh, Brian Stevenson, he was uh, on the board of Open Society Foundation, right. and uh, he's amazing. But, yeah, he is. Uh, someone else, Cheryl and Eiffel, who is uh, the director of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, has written a number of books uh, on lynching. Um, and the uh, you know folks would bring family and uh, bring food like mm. you were going uh, uh, to the game. Right. Uh, and we're not that far removed, uh, you right. know, uh, from that, right? You yeah. Know, um, yeah. In, in this nation. Yep. Um, anything else on your mind before we wrap up? Oh, wow. Um, like, I'm just throwing you a broad, say anything you want to moment. Well, first of all, I want to say uh, thank you, right? Oh, you're um, and just the power of uh, uh, networks, right? And, right. Uh, uh, you reached out to me, I think, on LinkedIn. Yeah, totally and, cold. And I said, "Who is this? Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 this guy?" And uh, here we are. Um, right. And so, you know, one, you know, I, I certainly want to go back to remaining hopeful and residing on the side of a promise, right? And uh, I am telling myself that more so than anyone that's listening, you know, any of your uh, uh, future uh, hundreds of thousands of listeners of your uh, uh, podcast, <laughs> right? And that uh, we all have a choice uh, uh, every day, right? Uh, yeah. I have two voices in my head and one voice that says, you know, who the hell do you think you are? Uh, to be leading a national uh, movement for black male achievement. Uh, right. uh, look how broken you are. Look at all that you have done and all your shortcomings. Uh, I can choose to listen to that voice. Or I can choose to listen uh, to the other voice that uh, says that, you know, this is your divine destiny. Uh, I've called you to do this work because of your mm -hmm. uh, 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 you bro your, your, your brokenness. And uh, I'm in an interesting, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 55 uh, and kind of feel like I'm in between. Uh, it seemed like yesterday I was a child prodigy, right? Right. Uh, in between those days and embracing elderhood, right? right? And how do I, uh, when I was a youth, I thought at 55 I would be uh, shopping for my rocking chair and getting on cruise control. Right. And how at 55 uh, do I continue to wake up? And uh, choose to listen to the voice that you were born for this and realizing that you have so much more to do uh, ahead of you, uh, 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 Sean. And, uh, you know, I will tell if I uh, have a few minutes, uh, yeah. uh, just my you know, any, any opportunity I, uh, I get, uh, I tell the story about community and what we have inside of us. That uh, I think God really wants to get out of us. Uh, we will never get out alone, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and I was there for the birth of all four of my children. And I won't tell the long version of the story, but my first daughter, Nia, uh, I thought that I could not have children. This was my second marriage. And when my wife told me her water broke, right. I was like, get out of here. No, that didn't happen. And so Nia has a uh, photo journal just thick because uh, I took pictures going to the elevator right in the cab and i was like just this excited uh dad and 12 yep. hours later uh they induced labor 
my second child, Maya, you know, she uh, came into the world a little differently. Uh, one hour after the first contraction, she exploded onto the scene. And if it was up to me, because we moved from Harlem to uh, Queens, uh, if it was up to me, Maya would have been born like on a Grand Central Parkway or the Triborough Bridge. And, right. And, and and that's how Maya came. But my twin boys uh, were a little different. My wife had to go on bed rest mm-hmm. uh, for most of the pregnancy. And when it was time for her to deliver... Um, my firstborn son, Cameron, she pushed him out. This is the third baby she pushed out. But uh, Cameron's twin brother, Caleb, no matter how hard my wife, Desiree, pushed, he would not come out. Hmm. And he was what you call breech. Yep. He was turned around. Yep. And uh, they were not ready for a C-section. And nine minutes after Cameron was born, Caleb's vital signs began to drop. And the doctor said, I have to go in and pull him out. And my wife says, you know, still says that was the most painful thing mm. she ever experienced. I think I still have the uh, nail marks in my arm. Um, but, you know, now Caleb is a, a 16-year-old, wow. uh, 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 sometimes moody, sometimes happy, eating me out of house and home, a <laughs> uh, uh, 16-year-old boy along with his twin. But the metaphor for me is what I want to really share to everyone um, that's listening. That no matter what you've pushed out in your life, uh, no matter how great you think it is, uh, the thing that is inside you that really needs to come out, that is going to advance and serve humanity, that there is no way you are going to push it out alone. Mm. That uh, I believe that vulnerability is the new sexy when it comes to leadership. Right. That we have to get vulnerable. And um, I need to come to you and say, Dave, I got something inside of me and I need your help to pull it out. Right. I think so many people are in pain because they are isolated and trying to get this thing out of them that on, will serve humanity own. on their own. And we were created to be in community and to relationship. And I think the more we can get a critical mass of us making connections like this and and being able to get vulnerable and trust and say, I got this inside of me. I need your help to pull it out, uh, that we will begin to accelerate and elevate uh, positive social change in this nation. That's beautiful, Sean. That's sweet, brother. Thank you for that end. Well, thank well, you very thank much. Thank you uh, for getting me down to the East Village. Haven't been here <laughs> in a, a long time, and uh, since my Delancey Day, uh, Delancey Street shopping days when I was an adolescent, and uh, uh, you're manifesting one of my uh, primary tenets of uh, becoming masters of your own media. So. Uh, cool. Wish you all the success with the podcast. Thank Let you. me know when it's out, and I will be uh, one of your champions uh, with getting it out there. Thanks very much. Especially my episode. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. All right. all right. Thank you. My thanks again to Sean Dove. Thanks for listening to USA TBD. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and help us spread the word to family, friends, and the multitudes on social media. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at USA TBD. Thanks to my editor and engineer, Alex Brazell. We'll see you next time.